Welcome to the Daily Dive Weekend Edition. I'm Oscar Ramirez, and every week I explore the top stories making waves in the news and some that are just plain interesting. I'll connect you with the journalists and the people who know the story and bring you news without the noise so you can make an informed decision. You can catch a new episode of the Daily Dive every Monday through Friday, and it's ready when you wake up. On the Weekend Edition, I'll be bringing you some of the best stories from the week. Some good news on the coronavirus front, as we might be closer to herd immunity than you think. Right now, more than 64% of adults have had at least one vaccine dose. And for those that haven't had the vaccine, about half of them have natural immunity from prior infection. When you factor in this natural immunity, the number of individuals protected is more than we think. For more on why herd immunity might not be so far off, we'll speak to Dr. Marty McCary. He's a professor at the Johns Hopkins School of Medicine and author of The Price We Pay, what broke American healthcare and how to fix it? Well, one of the big failures of our medical leadership has been ignoring natural immunity from prior infection. And those are people who had the infection and their body developed an immune response similar to that of a vaccine. And so when you've got almost half the population or so, roughly, based on the California data, that has natural immunity, and there's lots of other data that suggests it's a lot of Americans, it's probably half, and it's probably half of the unvaccinated Americans today, that changes the calculus. It changes everything because now getting to 80 to 85 percent immunity is something where we're already there. We've already got, look, we've got 64 percent of adults vaccinated and of the remaining 36 percent, about half have natural immunity. So that means 80 to 87 percent of adults in America today are walking around with immunity. That makes a big difference. Yeah, and there's been studies done, uh, antibody screenings that have been done that show that there's a lot of a lot more cases probably than confirmed cases that we know of. So that boosts that number up uh, of those people that have the natural immunity. And for a long time, the discussion was we don't know how long immunity lasts, whether you're vaccinated or whether you've had COVID previously. But we're starting to get some of that data in now, and we see that that natural immunity does last for quite some time, it seems like. It's powerful. And as a matter of fact, the data that have come out in the last few weeks from the Cleveland Clinic and Washington University are showing that natural immunity is durable. We've had it around, by the way, longer than we've had vaccines. So we have more follow-up data on natural immunity than vaccinated immunity. And guess what? So far, natural immunity is strong, durable, and many scientists believe it's long-lasting and it may be lifelong. Public health officials keep saying, you know, everybody should get vaccinated, even those that have previously had it. How does this factor into that? I mean, should those that have previously fallen ill with it still get vaccinated? I don't think so. I mean, public health officials are basically just making stuff up as they go. They don't know about the power of natural immunity. So they just say, you know what, if you've had the infection, I don't know, just get the vaccine anyway. The data are out now. They're very compelling. We've had this for a while and we're trying to make a solid case that if we follow the science, the science would tell us there's no benefit to the vaccine after you have natural immunity. And, I'm, and, and just remember, I'm not just talking about you tested positive. I'm talking about you had symptoms, you were sick and you tested positive. If you know you've had COVID, the data from Cleveland Clinic shows no added benefit of the vaccine. Yeah, you even said in some cases, maybe people could benefit from one shot because we already know that it starts boosting up those antibodies. So at the very least, if you wanted to, you can maybe just do one or something. 
That's right. And that's what I've been recommending to people because they say, well, should I just get it anyway? Is there any downside? And the reality is, no, not really. And you can almost think of your COVID infection in the past as a first dose. Right, right. Exactly. Uh, uh, Variants. Those are always pop up in conversations like this. Things that can evade the immunity that's given to you because of the vaccines, all that. Uh, How should we proceed thinking about those? Well, we've had hundreds of variants and none have evaded the protective effect of vaccines in saving someone's life or preventing serious critical illness. So that says a lot. Now, I am very mindful of what we're seeing overseas because in England, there's been a little bump in cases and I expect there to be some rolling increases over the summer and the fall, but we're not going to see spikes. We're going to see maybe the Delta variant, which is more contagious, kind of move quickly through the younger populations that are still unvaccinated. And it's something to be aware of and not be surprised by. Right, exactly. Uh, Doctor, I did want to ask you, because you are a surgeon and uh, you deal with transplant uh, patients as well, and we had been hearing that in some studies, some transplant patients, people who are immunocompromised, aren't getting the full benefits of the vaccine. Have, Have you found that to be true? In people who are immunocompromised, they may want to get their antibody level checked, and if it's not high enough, go ahead and get a third dose in some cases. And that's just a byproduct of the drugs that they're taking to you know, prevent their bodies from rejecting those organs? That's right. Their bodies are not mounting a strong immune re- response because their immune systems may be suppressed. So those are things now where we're having conversations with lots of doctors nationwide to say, go ahead and get your third dose if you've had an organ transplant or immunosuppressed and you don't see any antibodies after, the, after your second dose. So, I mean, this is some of the good news that, you know, really don't hear about too much, you know, factoring in that natural immunity is very important. And a lot of places are opening up, you know, California specifically where I live is opening up next week. I mean, that's good news. So, so we're getting there, which is very important. So thank you on all that front and kind of helping us with all that. Doctor, before we go, I did want to mention your book, The Price We Pay, What Broke American Healthcare and How to Fix It. It's a look into what's going wrong with the healthcare system right now. Uh, Tell us a little bit about it. You know, we need to treat more diabetes with cooking classes instead of just throwing insulin at people. And we need to treat more back pain with ice and physical therapy than just surgery and opioids. This is the movement that we are watching right now in the United States. And it's good and it's exciting. And it's finally addressing over-treatment, over-medicating, and price gouging on the financial side. These are things that we can address through increased awareness and promoting the types of clinics that advance this kind of stuff. And people can vote with their choices in terms of where they go for their health care. And it's a very good movement right now. And that's what I profile in this new paperback book. Dr. Marty McCary, professor at the Johns Hopkins School of Medicine, Bloomberg School of Public Health, and Cary Business School. Thank you very much for joining us. Great to be with you. Thanks for having me. This week, we also had some unsettling news in the tech world. Amazon is currently sharing your internet connection with your neighbors, and they didn't even give you a chance to opt out. Using Amazon-connected devices such as Echo smart speakers and Ring cameras, they launched a new kind of wireless network called Sidewalk. Amazon says it will improve the effectiveness of its devices, but you also have no control over the information shared on this network. For more on how to turn off the Sidewalk network on your devices, we'll speak to Jeffrey Fowler, tech columnist at the Washington Post. This fits in a tradition of Silicon Valley giant tech companies sort of deciding to make changes to do things with our data or with our 
technology and then only giving us the option to opt out of it later rather than getting our permission before we go in. Now, the, the premise of sidewalk is a little bit kind of hard to understand, but let me see if I can break it down. So lots of people, more and more Americans are getting smart home devices. I'm talking like both smart speakers, but also the lights or the or the thermostat, or you name it, or the security systems like the doorbells, all that kind of stuff. And Amazon is one of the biggest makers of these kinds of devices and also one of the biggest sellers. And so it's saying like, look, a lot of people have trouble setting up these devices because maybe their home Wi-Fi network doesn't stretch far enough, or you know their house is just too big to cover all that space. So the idea with Sidewalk is Amazon wants to cover American cities and also suburbs with another kind of network. It's not like Wi-Fi. It's like much lower bandwidth, much less data goes through it, but it can travel much further. So with the sidewalk network, for example, a single Amazon Echo device, one of those speakers, can extend a wireless network to up to like half a mile away. So imagine that, like a single device is going to be sharing an internet connection with just a whole neighborhood of people. So Amazon's argument for this is like, look, by you like lending a hand a little bit, you're going to make sure that everybody in your neighborhood can have a cool smart home. Yeah. And I, I guess some, one of the arguments they say too, is uh, let's say there's a Wi-Fi outage at your house with your ring camera or something like that. You know, if it's connected to this network, it'll still work. It'll still activate because it's connected to this sidewalk network. So in that sense, I guess it kind of, kind of makes sense. But as you mentioned, the whole uh, not allowing you to opt out of this thing was kind of an issue. And you may be thinking, Hey, well, I have a, an older device or something. The connectivity for these things go back to at least 2018 and some of the Amazon Echo smart speakers. That's right. So they've been putting the technology to enable Sidewalk into some of these devices going back to 2018. On those early devices, it was just using kind of a Bluetooth technology. But in the newer ones, they've got this kind of long range uh, wireless that can really stretch really far. And look, there are plenty of good uses for this technology as we were saying. But the problem is Amazon is once again not answering important questions about how far this will go. We know that Amazon is a company that has really big ambitions for things, right? So I asked them, okay, so now that you are going to have this nationwide network that you control, are you going to use it for your own business? Are you going to use it to track packages? Are you going to use it to track your drivers? Are you going to use it for your drones that you've talked about that you want to send around America? They wouldn't answer the question. Another thing we know this network is probably going to be used for is, frankly, to extend surveillance into corners of cities and communities where network just didn't reach before, right? So that's going to mean more surveillance, more cameras, more sensors, more everything. And that data, of course, always inevitably ends up with the police. So there's a big reason to think that if you participate in Sidewalk, you're actually helping Amazon build Big Brother. Two questions on this now. How much does it cost us? Because they're taking some of our internet stuff that we're paying for. And then security. Um, my understanding, they say that they have three layers of encryption, which I guess would make it pretty secure. But we've never dealt with this type of uh, side network working off of our Wi-Fi and all that. Exactly. Well, let's talk about security first. You got it exactly right. They say they've got a triple encrypted. Nobody's going to be able to break in. Some security folks I know have looked at it and they say they're impressed. But... Nothing is foolproof. And this is a new kind of network that has not been tested at scale before, right? It's not been a high profile target. So we don't know if someone's going to be able to break into it. And if they do, they would then possibly get access to the data that's traveling over it, which could be stuff about people's homes. So there is a reason to be concerned about that. And yes, the other thing you pointed out, which I think is super key here, is 
Amazon is building a nationwide network and getting us to pay for it. Yeah. I mean, we literally are paying for it. We're buying these devices, installing them in our homes, and giving them access to our internet connections that we pay Comcast or you know, Charter or whoever $65 or more a month to get. Now, Amazon has put a max limit on the amount of data that Sidewalk will use in a month. That's 500 megabytes. That's only a portion of probably what you use at home over a month, but it's still something. And a lot of people have data caps on their internet plans. If you go over, you have to pay that overage, not Amazon. All right. Now, the good and bad news. The bad news is by the time you heard this already, it's been turned on. The good news is that it's fairly easy to turn off. You you In most cases, you just got to go in your settings go around until you find a sidewalk and then you can turn that off. That's right. So Amazon did not ask your permission to turn it on, but you do have the ability to opt out. So to do that, first of all, you need to have one of these devices that works with sidewalk. I've been hearing from some folks, okay, when I looked at my settings, but I didn't see it. That's because you don't have a, one of these devices that's new enough. It really started with the 2018 devices. If you've got one of the original Echoes or something, it's fine. So if you have one of these newer devices, you go into the Alexa app, you find your way to settings, then account settings, and then inside there, you'll see Amazon Sidewalk. I've got a, a step-by-step uh, picture guide in my column in the Washington Post. Jeffrey Fowler, tech columnist at the Washington Post. Thank you very much for joining us. You bet, and stay safe out there. As we've been hearing a lot more about ransomware attacks in the country, this week, we heard that the U.S. was able to recover a portion of the money that was paid out in the ransomware attack on the Colonial Pipeline. The FBI was able to seize $2.3 million of the $4.4 million that was paid out to the Russian hacker group DarkSide. While some details are being kept secret by the feds, they were able to access the private key to DarkSide's digital Bitcoin wallet. For more on this twist in the ransomware attack, we'll speak to Kevin Collier, reporter, at NBC News. This is a tactic that is not something that we have been aware of in any of the number of kind of open and on that the FBI and uh, Secret Service have opened up into ransomware gangs. So there are so many victims. There have been more than a thousand ransomware attacks this year alone. That's just ones we know about. You know, the number is probably three times that size. And this is a new tactic that we're learning about. And the FBI is very specific about what it's saying. And I had a call with uh, a special agent in charge that oversaw this yesterday. And they're being vague on purpose because they don't want to tip off the hackers how exactly they were able to seize this. Yeah, this was done by a recently launched ransomware and digital extortion task force. So they were able to do it. And as you said, yeah, they don't want to reveal all their secrets because they want to be able to do this in the future. But they were able to access the private key or password for the gang's Bitcoin wallet. My understanding was that you know, a lot of times when these things happen, they're moving the money constantly, so you can't keep tracking it. But this amount of money was sitting there for some time. They were able to find it and get in that way. So I guess the other part of the question is, you know, how did they get that password, that private key? And that's kind of one of the big mysteries right now. The kind of million dollar question here is, did the hackers do something incredibly stupid where they were just hosting it on a, you know, some sort of U.S. service and let the FBI just easily get a warrant and just take it over? Or was it something more complicated, more technically adept that somehow, you know, hacked something more fundamental to the Internet infrastructure? And like I said, they're being deliberately vague. I mean, did they have help from other agencies, maybe ones better known for technical prowess? That we don't know either. One of the other things that worked in their favor is that a lot of the Internet infrastructure is based in the United States. 
they were mm-hmm. able to get warrants surrounding this. I mean, they don't know if people in the cryptocurrency companies or not helped the FBI, but this was kind of one of the things that were working in their favor. Yeah, and there's a lot of speculation early on that it was Coinbase. Coinbase said, no, no, we, we were not a part of this. But as a general rule, this is a massive advantage the United States has over the rest of the world in that so much of the dominant internet infrastructure comes from Silicon Valley, you know, is, is in physically located in the United States. And, you know, the United States government, when it wants to flex those muscles, often is able to, you know, have substantial power that way. The Colonial Pipeline CEO, his name is Joseph Blunt, he was speaking before a Senate hearing and kind of defended, explained his actions on, on why he paid the ransom initially. You know, he said, I thought it would just be best for the country to get this done quickly. They paid the ransom. Uh, the key that they gave them to recover their data was working so slow that they ended up using their own backup systems to restore everything mm-hmm. to the pipeline. But what else did he say in that Senate hearing uh, about why he paid this ransom? Well, you know, he's framed this as, you know, this is a, a, a national security issue. I mean, it's true, you know, Americans were freaking out the possibility of not having, you know, quite as much fuel, <laughs> you know, gas at down. But he defended this as he didn't know a ton about ransomware. He had not planned uh, a ransomware-specific scenario for the company. And so he took every option he could right off the table. If, you know, a lot of ransomware experts will tell you, it can often be easier to use the FBI's tools, uh, CISA, you know, Department of Homeland Security's defensive agency's uh, tools, where a lot of private companies have decryptor tools that are more effective for most ransomware strains than the ones that, that the ransomware gangs will sell to you. And DarkSide in particular was kind of infamous for having a very slow decryptor. So if he hit the brakes a little bit and then talked to some experts before paying, he would have been able to do this more quickly to begin with. Right. Yeah, and you know, Darkside itself, I guess they became active around October. They've already extorted 90 million out of different companies and entities, you know. So they're still plugging away at all of this. You know, the FBI obviously was making the call to, "Hey, this is great. We are able to do this." But they made the plea for other companies or whoever else gets attacked by this to come to them so they can help, you know, work these tools. Maybe it won't work for everybody, but at least they can help because before this, the prevailing line was don't pay the ransom, all that jazz. But, you know, so they're, they're asking for people to come forward when they get hacked. We really are seeing a big escalation in U.S. response to ransomware. I, you know, I've done this for, for several years and it has just steadily increased. There have been so, you know, there have been so many hospitals, so many schools, so many cities, police departments, manufacturing companies, so many targets have been hit. And, you know, as you mentioned, they, they've recently escalated or elevated the threat to the same kind of equivalent status as terrorism has been. And we're seeing a substantially stronger response from the U.S. government. Well, they were able to recover some of that money. We'll see how this goes. You know, we've just been hearing more and more about these ransomware attacks that you mentioned, police departments. I think I've heard of some uh, news coming that uh, about that coming down the pipeline pretty soon. It's affecting everybody all over the place. And obviously, as you mentioned, the worry is that critical infrastructure increasingly becomes a target. So we'll see what happens with all of that. Kevin Collier, reporter at NBC News. Thank you very much for joining us. Thanks so much. Take care. Don't forget to join us on social media at Daily Dive Pod on Twitter and Daily Dive Podcast on Facebook. Leave us a comment, give us a rating, and tell us the stories that you're interested in. Follow us on iHeartRadio or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Oscar Ramirez, and this is the Daily Dive Weekend Edition.